Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Welcome back. We are continuing our studies in the book of Ruth, and now we need to broaden our minds with more Eastern thinking. So read, last time we left off talking about saviors on Mount Zion, and what is the meaning of the Goel. So here is another ancient book that you're saying is just as applicable to us today as we have learned that the book of Jonah and Daniel is. Yes, that's true. And once again, learning to think like an ancient Easterner makes the book more comprehensible. In short, ancient Jews understood the world more empirically than analytically. They believed that knowledge gained through real-world experience was more useful than verbal lectures based on academic learning. Much of the confusion which plagues students of Holy Writ and Ordinance today is simply the natural impulse modern man has to perceive Eastern concepts through a Western lens. Modern Judaism has no satisfying answers as to why they need a promised land, or why God gave them a legal land claim to the land of Israel in the first place. 
It is a little shocking to consider that while all religions based on legal descent from Abraham want the land of Israel, none of them understand why they should want it. What is further shocking is that modern Judaism has no concept of the resurrection. It is only in the wake of the restoration of the Lord's gospel under Joseph Smith that the knowledge of earth's ownership and destiny is properly understood. In brief, under the laws of ancient inheritance, the birthright son was given a double portion of his father's estate. He was also given first choice in selecting his portion. This was not just favoritism. Being the eldest, this son would have been mentored by his father the longest, would know his ways and wishes best, and was expected to take care of his mother, the elderly, and any additional females and servants that had been under his father's care. The extra portion was to help him do that. Jesus Christ is the eldest child and firstborn of God the Father. So he carries all the above responsibilities and gets first choice in terms of land. He chose the land of Israel and made Abraham and eventually Israel his sons. Later, the Lord would subdivide his land for the twelve tribes, giving Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, the birthright son, the double portion. The Lord sees his land rather like we understand a modern lease. The land is his, that is undisputed, but he gives sections of it to his children to take care of. The Lord sees his land, both his holy land and the entire earth, rather like we see a modern lease. The land is his. That is undisputed. But he gives sections of it to his children to take care of. We use the word stewardship to explain this relationship. Once the twelve tribes of Israel were given their stewardship portion of the land, they were expected to improve it, use it, and be blessed by it. Since the land was the Lord's, it could never be taken from them, nor could they legally sell it or give it away. In theory, under this system there could be no homeless in Israel, because everyone had a place that could not be taken from them, except by the Lord. Now, wickedness and the realities of our fallen world make this divinely beautiful concept impossible. Satan, carnal man, and the silly woman laden with sin will always make God's perfect systems impossible. God hates the concept of landlords and tenants because it goes contrary to his ownership. The Lord did allow men to lease out property to others for various reasons in Israel, but it was only temporary. It was done like this. Two parties could draw up a contract, transferring stewardship between them from the date recorded until the start of the coming Jubilee year in exchange for whatever terms were agreeable and legal. Throughout all Israel, all debts and contracts were void on the year of Jubilee. The contract was then rolled up and sealed. On the outside, the terms of undoing the deal would be written. This safeguarded the original steward in the event that he wanted to get out of the arrangement early. It might have looked something like this example. King David decides that he wants to run a vineyard for court use and to make some extra money. He approaches Issachar, who owns a vineyard. Issachar agrees to David's use of his stewardship land for 10% of the product produced there. Since this contract was made five years before the next jubilee, it can only be binding for five years. The two men agree, and the contract was rolled up in a scroll and sealed. 
It is further agreed that if Ishakar changes his mind, he can later get out of the contract by paying King David the value of the wine he would not be able to have for the years remaining in the deal. Those terms would be written on the outside of the scroll. There was one more law that was understood, but which we today are not familiar with. It is the law of the Goel. In the event that Ishakar wanted out of the deal, but was unable to meet the terms written on the outside of the contract, he had the legal right to approach a Goel to do it for him. This Goel could not just be anybody. He had to be willing to do it. He could not be forced into doing it. He had to be able to do it. He had to have the physical, financial, and mental means of doing it. And he had to be a blood relation of the person requesting it. In English, we would say that he needed to be a kinsman. The Hebrew phrase, doing the kinsman's part, is the same as saying being a goel. In terms of marriage, where a husband of a young woman had died, it might include a leverite marriage. This type of goel would also agree to fulfill the widow's desire for children and give them an inheritance. This could be an extremely useful arrangement for women in ancient times. It guaranteed them a place of honor where their widowhood might have otherwise been disastrous or meant a life of poverty for them. The rich and powerful of the earth have always hated the law of the year of Jubilee. In fact, Israel did all it could to avoid or ignore as much of it as they could get away with. While it is not the main focus of our study here, it is important to understand a few things. The year of Jubilee was the climax of the 50-year cycle where every 50th year the children of Israel celebrated the coming of the Messiah to take Israel as his bride and declare their sins officially atoned. Since all things belong to the Lord, it was mockery for any man to be in debt or in slavery at this time. Hence, it was a law in all of Israel that all debts were free and that all land and property reverted back to the original families which held it when the Lord first divided it up. Also, the land was to celebrate rest every seven years as well as the Jubilee year by not having to give up its strength in terms of crops. There was to be no farming the land during the year of Jubilee. It did not take the wealthy of Israel long to see the system as a nuisance. Landlords who had taken 50 years to build up infrastructure and tenants didn't like the idea of starting over. Large farming partners didn't like having to renegotiate terms a second time. Mineral rights, water rights, and energy rights could not be purchased from grandma and then denied to her adult grandsons when they came of age. In short, the upper classes hated it. They wanted to build empires for themselves on their terms and have them last forever. When you combine all of this with the Lord's command that no interest was to be charged in Israel, the people started looking for a way out of this system. For the most part, they simply ignored it. The Lord put up with their greed and disregard for his terms of the use of his land for 490 years. He would later tell the prophet Jeremiah that since Israel had ignored his terms of their lease of his land for 70 land cycles, he would allow the land to rest for 70 years by removing the Israelites into Babylon. With the concept of the year of Jubilee, and seven being a period of rest for man and the land, you are able to better understand a strange teaching the Lord gave during his mortal ministry in regards to forgiving someone seventy times seven. 
The Jews understand the number 50 to be a number of celebration and forgiveness. In their festivals, they observed that the Lord would frequently have them suffer through something 49 times, with the gift being their freedom on the 50th. You may remember this teaching. Matthew 18.21 Then came Peter to Jesus, and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee, until seven times, but until seventy times seven. You know that seven in Hebraic thinking was the number of completeness. Arrest is complete peace after successful labor. Since God saw a week as one complete cycle, the Jews understood it to be the number of a complete set of something. Peter's question to the Lord is perfectly Jewish. Is it okay to punch these people in the nose on the eighth offense? After we have put up with them seven times? Seven forgivings would be a complete set, after all. Jesus' answer, as always, is brilliant. He said, no, you have to forgive them seventy times seven. To the Hebrews, zeros were intensifiers. In English, they are a very. So you can add them or drop them as you are trying to make a very, very, very big point. Seven times seven is forty-nine. So the next offense makes... Fifty? You got it. And the fiftieth time a man went free. Peter understood it, and now you do too. You have to forgive men until the atoning year of Jubilee forgives all of us. Stop making that list of 490 things. Just let it go. God knew that there would always be the poor among us until the end, so he put in place an interesting welfare system in Israel. Under the law of Israel, a land steward, such as Boaz, was permitted to make one harvest pass through his land. This was done by the reapers, their word for landowner, servant, employee, or slave. Any grain that was missed, or might mature later, belonged to the poor of the community. These were called the gleaners. It is said that there was typically enough grain left that a gleaner could get a day's worth after a day of work. It was hard work, but note that since God made the grain grow, he was in charge of how fruitful their labors would become. He also saw that anyone willing to work had means to eat. Since Naomi had returned to Israel with nothing, Ruth proposed to take advantage of Israel's welfare system and work for their bread. We will soon see that Ruth's choice of field was more than just happenstance. Naomi, who understood more of the laws and rule of Israel, would soon make clever and romantic use of them. The Lord's point for our purpose here is that because life is by nature unfair, unbalanced, and difficult, exceptions to laws and social mercies have to be built into a system. One of God's most merciful gifts is the law of the Goel. A Latter-day Saint might say, in the law of vicariousness, although vicariosity sounds so much cooler, so we're going to use that word instead. Okay. It should now be obvious that these legal peculiarities of ancient Israeli law were put in place to help us better internalize our position before God, including our need for Jesus Christ. Each of us came to earth as a child of God with a promise and an inheritance. Due to sin, we have found ourselves in debt to one greater than ourselves. Luckily, we have a big brother who is willing and able to redeem us. He is our strong one, which non-coincidentally 
is what the name Boaz means, the strong one. Since a kinsman redeemer really has more to lose than gain by saving his kin, the question arises, why do it? The answer is love and family. Let's take a quick look at love with our Eastern eyes before moving on with our story in Ruth. Love it. Let's do it. In Hebrew, the root word of love is hav. It is an interesting word because it also means to set on fire. To the ancient Jews, the feeling of love within your chest was a burning. Oh my, that is interesting. Uh, please go on. Does that not add richness to the following modern-day instruction from the Lord to Joseph Smith? Doctrine and Covenants 9.8 But behold, I say unto you, that ye must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, ye shall feel that it is right. This scripture was a puzzlement to me in my youth. I frequently tried to experience this indigestion of the bosom in wanting a yes answer to my prayers, but it never happened that way. I remember going to my stake president at the time, who was a kindly sage of a man. I asked him about the scripture, and he said, I'm not sure how to answer you. I've just come to learn in time that when the Lord says yes, I feel a tingling up my back. It was only when I learned that fire and love are Hebraically the same feeling that I understood. Many, many times I have been wrapped in the warm fire of the Lord's love when he was answering me with approval. It was his yes, combined with thank you for respecting me so much as to seek my counsel. It is analogous to hearing well done, my good and faithful servant. Go thy way and stop sinning. It is exactly what Joseph Smith discovered and what James already knew. James 1.5 If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. In other words, if you need to know something, ask God. He can't wait to share his knowledge with you, and he will never upbraid you for asking. Upbraid means to mock or criticize. James is saying that God will never say, You dumb kid, why did you ask me that stupid question? So you are out nothing by asking, and the one who knows all is eager to hear and mentor you. The warmth you will feel when he answers in the affirmative is his way of saying, Go for it, and remember, I love you. The Jews say that the sparks of the burning bush, which drew Moses near, ignited the roaring furnace of Mount Sinai, where Jehovah the Great, in the form of a bridegroom, claimed Israel in marriage forever. Indeed, the Israelites experienced firsthand Isaiah's truth. Isaiah 33, 14-17 Who among us shall dwell in devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with God in everlasting burnings? He that walketh righteously, he shall dwell on high, his eyes shall see the king in his beauty. Why does God dwell in eternal fire? He does, you know. He told Joseph Smith, God Almighty himself dwells in eternal fire. Flesh and blood cannot go there, for all corruption is devoured by the fire. Our God is a consuming fire. When our flesh is quickened by the Spirit, there will be no blood in our new bodies. Why? Because God is love, and love is a powerful flame. There is one additional Easternism that might be useful in this setting. 
Easterners taught their children and their communities that beauty was to be found in function over form. This is directly opposed to the Western model, which we have been taught, that form is beauty. This Western ideal is summed up in Plato's Allegory of the Cave, but we will simplify it here since it is a concept that all Westerners know intrinsically. The idea is that somewhere out there lies the perfect mathematical male and female form. All of us are mere shadows of that perfection, reaching it or not reaching it in one degree or another. For example, men are told that a man's chest circumference should be 10 inches larger than his waist circumference, if he is to be an ideal male. Women are sometimes referred to as a 36, 24, 36, or some such set of numbers. All of these emphasize the physical form over the function. Greek gymnasiums, art, statuary, fashion, and even body armor were all designed to celebrate and inspire physical beauty. We are all aware of the satanic height at which Nazi Germany and the Illuminati took these concepts. Eastern peoples had a different view of beauty. This is not to say that Jewish boys didn't appreciate a pretty Jewish girl or vice versa, but it is to say that they were taught a different ideal. A perfect example of this has been preserved for us in the story of Abraham's choosing a wife for his heir Isaac. A very short background to set the stage. You will remember that in terms of the birthright and covenant, Abraham only had one son. It was extremely important to the plans of God that he be married to a suitable wife. Abraham's manservant, Eliezer of Damascus, was trusted with the task. It was no small one. She was to be the next matriarch of God's covenant. Abraham sent along expensive clothing and jewelry as gifts for the girl, as well as gifts for her family. Eleazar turned to God to help him. As a sign of God's choosing, he asked that God would choose the bride by having her be willing to give Eleazar a drink of water when asked, as well as being willing to water his camels. When he arrived at the central well in Abraham's ancestral hometown, he saw a girl and made his request. To his joy, she did offer him a drink and then proceeded to pour enough water for his ten camels. Just a heads up here, camels drink a lot. The scriptures say that she drew water until all ten camels were satisfied. Eliezer knew he had found the wife for Isaac. The eastern point here is that Eliezer was not looking for a girl with a 36-inch bust, 24-inch waist, and 36-inch hips, or any other ideal measurements. We do not know what Rebecca looked like. I have no doubt that she was beautiful, but it was her kindness, her function as a nurturer, that made her beautiful. Eliezer gave Rebecca a golden nose ring and two golden bracelets and explained his purpose in coming. Rebecca ran off to show her mother, Bethuel. And when her brother, the turd Laban, saw the presents, he rushed off to greet the man and bring him inside. This is the same Laban who would later cause his nephew Jacob such trouble in the future. The family agreed to the marriage, and Rebecca was eager to go. We would end our story here, except that the Lord preserved for us another tidbit in terms of Eastern male beauty. As Rebecca and the caravan approached Abraham's house, she observed a man in the distance praying over the fields. Rebecca was deeply touched by the man's steadfast devotion to his manly duties. It was beautiful in her eyes to see him petitioning God for a blessing over his home and stewardship. She lighted off her camel and pulled a veil about her face so as not to bring any dishonor to his prayer. 
She asked Eliezer who the man was and was overjoyed to learn that it was Isaac. For her, he was beautiful because he was a man who knew his duty. Again, we have no idea if Isaac's chest was 10 inches bigger than his hips, but he was handsome in Rebekah's eyes. They were quickly married, and all the fine furnishing that Abraham had prepared for Sarah, who had died some years before, was made ready for Rebekah. Rabbinic tradition does say that there were three miracles that crowned Sarah's dwelling place while she was alive. They say that in her tent, her lamp would burn without attention from Sabbath Eve to Sabbath Eve because she was the light of her family. They say that every Sabbath she found a blessing in her bread dough. I have no idea what that means. They say that a cloud hovered over her tent, symbolizing the blessing of God above her as a good and righteous mother of the covenant. All three of these left at Sarah's death. It is said that Abraham was joyous to discover that once Isaac had married Rebekah, all these three miracles returned to the family. Rebekah was the new princess, and indeed would soon be the mother of Israel. Isaac had found his love. Speaking of which, some sparks are about to fly in our book of Ruth. Let's meet the Romeo of our story next, and get Naomi and Ruth a little vicariosity from a man of great function, a true kinsman, and a Goel too. Let's meet Boaz. Yes, let's, but that will have to wait until our next episode. We are out of time, so everyone take this opportunity to practice your Eastern thinking skills. I would like to remind everyone that the author's books are available on Amazon and included in Kindle Unlimited. There are many more things in these books, including footnotes that the author has provided for us. So those that need greater knowledge, please seek these books out. And until then, our next podcast, we will meet Boaz. And until next time, may our Goel, the Lord Jesus Christ, be with you. Music